<laughs> That's comforting, thank you. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, the plan for today. The plan for today is to finish the Ten Commandments, make some general introductory comments on what the law is, and then we'll go into the, uh, the Apostles' Creed and the three articles of the Creed. We'll do the content and we'll make some general comments about the Creed. But again, the point of doing a small catechism class um, is to try to keep things simple. Now, I've probably failed already on that uh, many times, but that's the way it goes. So we're the, the goal, nonetheless, is going to be to make this simple. So in your catechism, if you have the 2017 edition, uh, you'll want to go to, what page is it here? No, that's the wrong page. Sorry. Uh, you'll want to turn to page 15. And for the rest of you who are using another edition, just find in the small catechism proper the uh, ninth and tenth commandments. And you'll probably have the close of the commandments there as well. Now, we had, covered, we had covered the biblical background. We had seen in Exodus the context of the commandments of God being given. And we had considered Luther's context and the parallels there and the way in which the commandments come to us. You, you recall just in very brief sketch, the Israelites are baptized, according to Paul, through the Red Sea. And then they receive the Ten Commandments. This is, this is your, God's will for you as God's people. And of course, then, you know, as God's people, we want to aspire to do that will of God. The sinful nature clings to us even after baptism, and we find that the good we want to do, we do not, and the evil we don't want to do, that we do. And so then the law ends up showing us our sins as well. Um, that, is, uh, that, is, that is then, um, we're going to talk about the three uses of the law, but, but there's a couple uses of the law right there. Now, as we go through the content, we're seeing that in the what does this mean section of the commandments, Luther is giving us a, a positive meaning and a negative meaning. You know, this is what you should not do, and this is what you should do on the basis of this commandment. And we're reflecting, too, on the, on the gifts that God is protecting. So when we look at the, the fourth commandment and father and mother, he's, he's protecting um, Already even there, the marital union and the family is the family unit of, of creation and of all human society. And then by extension, the two kingdoms, so that you have family and uh, the political sphere and the ecclesiastical sphere, those three spheres as, the, as really the, the essence of authority here in a fallen world, the three estates. Okay, so he's, he's you know, with his commandments, he's protecting these great gifts that he gives to us in the family. Life comes from that family. The two become one flesh. You know, that can't happen through the linguistic games we play about who can marry who. And um, the essence of marriage is that the two become one flesh. And a family is formed, new life is formed. And then that life is protected. In the fifth commandment, you, cannot, you shall not murder. Yes, sir. Uh, let's, let's get you a microphone here. Regarding the Luther's interpretation or explanation of all the commandments, the, mm -hmm. if we're dealing with either another Christian or a, an unbeliever, the commandments themselves are self-explanatory. 
this is what we believe God says, period. But the explanations, on the other hand, we acknowledge are from a sinful human being, and they're not God's word. True. So the, the question is, while I don't disagree with the explanations, and I find them good and helpful, and as a lifelong Lutheran, I understand where they come from, yeah. just using the fourth commandment as an example, how do you tell somebody in a short answer, honor your father and mother means you should also honor other authorities like the government? Because that could be a, a big stretch for some people. Mm. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, so the way to get at that, uh, it's a good question because we're not used to thinking this way as, as modern people, but the way to get at that is through the biblical narrative itself. And so you see, you see in the Garden of Eden, God, God creates the man first, remember? He speaks everything else into creation, but not the man. And the man he forms. And then he says, let us make man in, in, in our image. And one of the this is going to be a slight tangent, but, but one of the things there is that that's an ongoing action. It's one of, it's one of the actions that actually continues on um, so that when we see Adam and Eve, we really ought to see seeds of what it is that humanity is going to grow up and become. Okay? Um, but Adam is created first, and then he, God puts him into a deep sleep, and from his side is taken the woman, from his rib is, is taken the woman, and the woman is formed. And then it's in the rejoining of these two that you have the two becoming one flesh once more. And, and then um, in that you're reflecting this deeper reality, even before the foundation of creation, that God has in mind of joining himself in one flesh with man and being married to man. And so he creates and ordains it to be so. Okay? So then, in the Garden of Eden, if there's anything, if there's anything as authority, it would be just God. But then what does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply, which of course we, as 21st century Americans, zoom in on. But then he also says, have dominion over all creation. Now, hidden in that word dominion is lordship. You can even hear dominus, right? Lord. So have dominion. God puts human beings to be his officers, his image bearers, and his officers over this creation and to have dominion over it, okay? So there's the establishment, biblically speaking, of human authority even before the, before the fall. And if you want to get really concrete about it, that's held in, in Adam and Eve and, and Adam as head, specifically, okay? Now then, you come to the sad fall where there's the temptation and the fall into sin in chapter 3. And immediately after that, you see the repercussions of that in the murdering um, that takes place. Cain murders Abel. Very tragic, very sad. Um, what, what, then, what then transpires in the fallen world is, well, God, God has obviously condemned the sin of Adam and Eve and the serpent. God has promised that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. The very first time we get the gospel proper in the scriptures, God is actually speaking it to the devil. A lovely thing because it also, we, human, we fallen human beings want to make everything about us front and center. And even right there, we're just sort of there, right? We're, we're off to the side while God's proclaiming the gospel to the serpent um, in earshot of the man and woman. Now, as man and woman hear that promise, you have the institution of the church. Right? And you have them naturally then teaching their progeny 
uh, of this Messiah. You can see this in the text very literally in the Hebrew where when, um, when Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, comes, and Luther points this out, in the actual language of Eve, she says, not I have received a man from the Lord, which is typically the way of the English translations, but I have received a man, the Lord. Boy, could you see where Cain might have gone off the rails? <laughs> Since his birth, everyone telling him, hey, you're God in human flesh, you're the Lord, uh, and you're going to set everything right. He got a little full of himself. And then could not stand it when his brother's uh, sacrifice was acceptable to God on account of his faith and his was not acceptable to God on account of his arrogance and pride. And, okay, so what do you have there going on? You already have the first gospel being proclaimed by Adam and Eve in this, in this nation church where the gospel is proclaimed, there is the church. Okay, so the church is established. Um, and then, and then as, as murder comes about, and then, and then what do you have? You have Lamech come and he says, you know, Cain avenged, you know, Cain avenged himself. If, if anyone hurts Lamech or anything that's Lamech, so I'm going to avenge sevenfold, right? Well, in what sense is that just? This is where we misunderstood a la misunderstand a later phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we see this as like, ooh, that's vicious, that's hardcore. No, <laughs> that's actually stopping what's vicious and hardcore. You can't, you can't, you know, punish someone sevenfold. Okay, well, who's to say and what's to say, and how does this all get governed, and who holds who accountable, and how does that function? Well, now we're talking about government, right? And so government becomes, a, in, a, in a strange sense, okay, the way we understand the word church and government, they really come as the effect of the fall. Now, could you not find the church and government earlier than that? Well, of course you can, because Christ is earlier than that, and so is our dominion over the earth. It's earlier than the fall, okay? But the way we understand and use those things, they come from the fall, and they have, um, because of that command to have dominion over the earth, uh, that includes um, the authority that is government, and then because of God's promise, that includes the authorities, the proclamation of that promise, and the putting down of all lies contrary to that promise. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of how we get there from a biblical sense to where, you know, honor your father and mother, and then Luther takes that to be um, not, not despising or angering our parents and other authorities. Again, though this is very, there's kind of an existential, I've kind of done a historical theological treatment, but there's kind of an existential treatment as well that you can kind of do, and, and that's just, if, if, you, if you begin with the premises of, the biblical premises of the family that, um, the father is the head of the household and the, and the wife is a co-authority and their job is to govern and raise the children, then that authority lies within the, the central and essence. If that's the family unit, the, the authority lies within the family unit in father and mother and in particular with father. And that forms the background from which all other authority on earth takes place. You know, whether, whether that's monarchy or democracy or whatever you want to say, I mean, who would stand up and say, we want a different kind of government? The men. The men would all stand up and say, we want a different kind of government. We want to be ruled in this way. We want to, and, and we want to execute our rule in this way. You know. So anyway, I hope that that answers your question, but that's where some of that comes from. All right, so then we just talked about some of the uh, current event hot-button issues where the, f I mean, the fourth commandment, the fifth commandment, the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth uh, are just so apropos of our time and so intensely, I mean, these are the things that Satan is attacking. Of course, we talked about the, 
the fifth commandment, murder at the beginning of life, with abortion at the end of life, with euthanasia. Um, we talked about the sixth commandment, of course, the so-called sexual revolution, which is, you know, a disaster for humanity, a disaster for individuals. And what's been dis being discussed right now is um, if your state can take, if the state can take your child away from you and give them a, a chemical or physical castration without a, and against your will as parents. That's, these are the days we live in. It's kind of worse than saw. I don't know. I think it's worse than saw. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where we are. California's the cutting edge. Uh, so the Sixth Commandment's a big deal. And you can just, you can see how, you can see how these things too. Like when you, I, I know it like, I don't know. I get so depressed with later Lutheranism because there's like this thing of like, yeah, let's throw away the law. That sounds great. <sighs> So we can be like the rest of the sodomites, only know we're forgiven? I mean, it, it just, it makes zero sense, theologically, it makes zero sense historically. Uh, what constitutes us as the people of God is, is our baptismal identity in God, and it's, it's that gospel. But then, what does that identity take the form of? We want to be like God. We want to be who God is. It's one of the ways, it's one of the strange ways, and again, this is a tangent, I don't want to go too far down it. Um, but it's one of the ways that God actually is so gracious and so humble that Adam and Eve in their sin, if you look at it like what they want, they want to uh, be as God. And God's, God basically says, I'll grant your request, just not in the way you thought, right? In time and in my own way, I'll grant you precisely your, your request. You can be like God. And that's really the essence of the, and you can know, you can know good and evil, Right? And how does he answer that in a more profound sense? His, his law. I mean, we, can, we can talk about how, and we will talk about the role of conscience and how conscience can get um, unbound from, from its moorings. And like any other organ in our bodies, minds, souls, it can become distorted. And then how do you heal that conscience? Well, of course the gospel is involved. The gospel is what makes new. But the, but the gospel reforms that conscience into what? Along what lines? What's the shape or form? What's the, what's the cookie cutter? And that is precisely the law because the law articulates the heart of God and who God is, the essence. So this is, I mean, this is in times of peace, that's, this gets panned and slammed in times where the culture is, if not going along with you, at least tolerating you. That, you know, there's all, all kinds of room to, to slam the law and trying to conform ourselves to the law. But as the world around us becomes increasingly Sodom, the law is precisely what defines you over and against that culture and shines like a light drawing other people in. That's why Christ says, let your light shine before men that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. This was why the early church actually succeeded at evangelism, not because they were going door to door with flyers saying, where are you going to be if you died tonight? I mean, the early church, somehow, yeah, miraculously somehow the church grew for uh, 2,000 years without that question and without modern missionary uh, strategies. How so? It stood out as a city on a hill, as a light that can't be hidden, and it offered people a different way of life. And Sodom, uh, Sodom says, hey, have whatever you want, and then it absolutely trashes you and throws you in the gutter. And so the church comes along and, sa and they say, you're, you're different. And they're saying, yeah, we have something different for you. We have a dignity for you far greater. You know, you're not, 
You're not going to be thrown into the gutter. You're coming into the householding kingdom of God. And by the way, this is, this is the shape and contours of that. That's why Paul's so interested in exhortation and, and defining the shape and contours of the first century church. Okay, so that the light shines in the darkness and the two aren't, aren't blurred. And people can see there's an alternative. Okay, so all the more, all the more, we need to recover our identity as children of the Father, realizing that this is the will of the Father, as the Lutheran confessions everywhere speak. And in conforming ourselves to the law and delighting in the law, as Paul would say, we're conforming and delighting ourselves um, in God, in the will of God. All right, the seventh commandment, theft all over. We talked about how various forms of government are inherently uh, theft. We talked about how the big corporations, it's theft. Um, but <laughs> all our services and Bible studies, um, you couldn't get them online for the last week or two. Um, because uh, a Cox dropped the ball. They had some technical issues. They dropped the ball. So, okay, no problem. Free market. We'll just go find somebody other than Cox, right? Wrong. There is nobody other than Cox. All right. So, um, theft is, uh, is an ongoing issue in our culture, and there becomes less and less recourse the more giant companies. I mean, how many times have you been dealing with these giant companies that you can't even go and talk to somebody? And you'd have to spend hours and hours and hours. It's just, it's not worth it. You just go, I'm just going to take the loss. I just, I, it's better for them to pick my pocket once than to pick my pocket twice after I sit in line with them for two hours and maybe still don't get my return or my money back. And I was just, so it's, what, what do Christians do in the, in the business world? Shine with, shine with a different light that says, you know what, the buck isn't what matters, God is what matters, and fairness is what matters, and justice is what matters, and giving you a fair shake, and letting you know when I stole something from you, or when something you know, turned out to my advantage and not to yours. Like, I mean, that's what makes us shine in the workplace. So people go, what's that? Why is that shining? Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, that's the whole point. Um... The Eighth Commandment, you shall not give false testimony, is like, it's like, it's personally why I don't have any social media accounts. <laughs> the second I would sign up, I'm not saying this is the case for you, I just know myself. The second I would sign up, an, an army of angels would descend shouting, this is going to be a violation of the Eighth Commandment, Rody. So, um, <laughs> So, yeah, each to their own, but the internet lends itself, social media lends itself to, um, thank you for the little extra volume there, if I was too quiet in the back. I, s I suddenly got a little quiet and depressed thinking about how lost we all are. <laughs> the kind of thing where I need a whiskey in it instead of a coffee, but it's only 9.43, and there's a lot more church. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the internet's just designed as a, there we go again, all right. So the internet's, I mean, or I don't know, it's a neutral tool. I don't want to go overboard. It's a neutral tool, right, but, but it lends itself to the worst of humanity in terms of violation of the Eighth Commandment. All right, the Ninth and the Tenth Commandment are lumped together, and I think this is, this is really kind of fun. The more you think about the structure of the Ten Commandments, the ordering and substance of the Ten Commandments, the more there is there to learn. You really get why Luther says that in the Garden of Eden, when God says, um, you may eat of all the trees in the garden except for the one, 
Luther says, if they, if they would not have listened to the serpent and would have just held that one word of God, they would have extrapolated and known the Ten Commandments and everything else we presently know about God and more, just from that single word of God. And it's so true. That's so true. Um, even the Ten Commandments are like that. The Lord's Prayer is like that. The longer you meditate on these little tight texts, the more they expand. You can see them in all manner of different way. They're just never-ending. It's just never-ending. It's infinite. And, and the, the law of God is so beautiful and so delightful in that way. Um, but, but what's fascinating is, is one can kind of sense this order and hierarchy. Um, it's more complicated than that, but let's keep it simple. And, um, but then the ninth and the tenth commandments uh, end with a bang. They really end with a bang. And I think, we're, I think we're guilty, I know I'm guilty, of kind of misunderstanding and misteaching this language of coveting. Because we put it, and you can see, what is the ninth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then what is the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your, to your neighbor. That, that language of coveting isn't so much like I want what's not mine. Um, I mean, that, you can see already how that's like, like difficult. Like, how can you go to the grocery store? You know, you want what's not yours. So, you, do you see what I'm saying? There's, there's a little difficulty there. And then, and then you kind of go to, from there to like, well, not being satisfied with what God does have. And that gets a little more to it. But then I think St. Paul has it right. That, that coveting, if, it did, if the law did not say coveting, I wouldn't have even known it was wrong to covet. What these, la- what these last commandments are doing is actually getting down to the human heart and the concupiscence. That's the fancy word. You can hear in the middle of that word, cupid, desire, the concupiscence, the desire of the flesh to have um, just what is contrary to God. Okay? God says, this is your house or apartment or tent or whatever it may be, right? And you say, I want my neighbors. Like The heart just says that, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, you could literally say, you know, yeah, you could, I, I mean, when you're, when you're young and poor and have nothing, it's like, I could go for just that. So God says, okay, here you go. You know, maybe it takes five or ten years. Okay, here you go. Is, is, that, is the heart content with that? No, as soon, as soon as you have that, it wants what the neighbor has. So that's the, I think that's the deep dive and essence of these commandments is, so, so you want a wife or a spouse. God says, in, good, in due time, here you go. Okay. But then as soon as you have that, is your heart content? No. No, you want your neighbor's wife. You want your, you know, you want your neighbor's manservant or maidservant, your neighbor's em- employer, um, or excuse me, employee or whatever the, uh, the analog would be. Oh, his, don- his ox or donkey. You know, you want, it's not enough to have your own. You always want, and, and that, what, what's really illustrated there is just the, the heart in antithesis to the gifts of God. So that's why I say it ends with a, I, I see your hand, Let, let's get you a microphone while I finish this thought. That, but that's why I say that it ends with a bang, not with a whimper, because it really shows how diseased we are. And in fact, you can take this coveting then, as Paul says, and that, that really, re- we do it so naturally that if the law didn't even tell us, we would just assume that that's human nature, not wrong, not sin, right? And then you can kind of read that back through all the commandments and you can see how our hearts, by nature, are opposed to everything that God says. I mean, you know, it's, it's a stupid way of speaking. It's not actually true, but rhetorically it makes a point. I mean, if God said, from here on out, everyone needs to be a homosexual, what would the world do? 
down with homosexuality, you know, back to marriage between just a man and a woman. I mean, the point being, the point being, if God says A, the world's going to say not A. If God says B, our hearts are going to say not B. You know, it just, it, God can't win for losing. That's the, that's the nature of the sinful nature. Okay, and so this last commandment, these last two commandments together, really pack a punch. All right, let's, let's have your comment, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into the meanings of these. Well, I was going to say that I didn't agree, but the mm. last bit I do agree with. Oh, um, glad I convinced you. Thanks. But <laughs> I re- Fabulous. Um, when I was in confirmation, I remember thinking, I don't want what my neighbor has. I don't want, you know, I don't want his house or his, mm-hmm. but I think it goes further than that. It's like, why don't I have what he has? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've heard, you know, someone say that I should have what he has. Why don't I have? So it goes to contentment with what God's given you. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Or lack of contentment. Mm-hmm. But I think we're programmed in this society to want more and more and more and more. And so more, me- bigger means better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we want to respect ourselves. And if we have more in this world, we're more respected, perhaps. Right. And if we're content with less, and we don't necessarily want what our neighbor has, and we don't ask, why don't I have that, mm-hmm. we're looked at as kind of being infantile and stupid. Yeah. Yeah, Just it's, name uh, a few. yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, you can, th- you can think about this in a number of different ways. Even if you just kind of strip it down to that God, is, that God has given us our, our bodies and our souls, our reason and all our senses. And even with that, we're not quite content. I mean, who here, who here is content with every part of their body? <laughs> and the older you get, the less content you get. <laughs> But I remember, I remember even thinking as a little kid, like I struggled really bad with allergies. I still to some extent do, but I like terribly with allergies. And I just remember thinking like, if not for these allergies, I'd have it all. You know, I'd be, I mean, I'd be a comfortable little kid. I mean, of course that's wrong, but, but that's just the way we're prone to think is like there's just this thing or there's just that thing. Even when you just strip it down to something so much as us, there's always this discontent. And, and then what do, I find myself meditating on this all the time, like, well, what do you want here, Rody? What are you expecting? And the answer is like, well, perfection. Well, well, everything to be right. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting work to be right and family to be right. And, you know, I'm just expecting it to be right. You know, so, so, wh- so why are you unhappy again, oh, my soul? Because it's not right. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so, so that, that, um, yeah, and then you can, I mean, you can talk about the lack of contentedness, and you can talk about the restlessness, and you can talk about the expectation. You can talk about all those different elements of the sin. But again, I just think Paul's got it exactly right, where he takes covetousness to be concupiscence. You know, you're going you're gonna to find a nit to pick with every last thing that God gives you. you know, there's always somebody out there smarter. There's always somebody out there better looking. There's always out there, you know, somebody out there who's more eloquent or better at math or more respected. It's just, you know, that's how it is. So it's the human condition. Instead of receiving what you have and then blessing God, it's the human condition to covet, to rage against that in whatever form it takes. Yeah. 
Well, your mileage may vary, but those are some of my reflections. Did I see another microphone? Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. thank you. Uh, I wonder, Pastor, uh, maybe this is a shallower point, but I wonder if, uh, if the Ninth and Tenth Commandments don't um, reiterate what Christ said about doing things in your heart. It seems like the, the Ninth Commandment is about property, right? Mm -hmm. Don't covet your neighbor's property. Mm -hmm. And to do so is stealing from your neighbor in your heart. Mm -hmm. And the other one is about things that can love and be loved back and love back. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it's like a, a committing adultery in your heart, especially if you mm. consider cons you know, coveting your neighbor's wife is basically to commit adultery with your neighbor's wife in your heart. Um, so I wonder if there's, there's something to, to be said there about I, that. I think that's a nice distinction. Yeah, the, the house is the kind of um, the things. property, things. the stuff, yeah. Yeah. and then the, the other, the, the persons or beings, so to speak, associated with your, I mean, because you've got the ox and donkey in there, unless he's talking about family members. But. Well, yeah, <laughs> but you, you know, there is, there is this, this, you know, there is yeah, this whole thing that, you know, you, you basically want to steal the love of their, of, of his, of the donkey, right? The, the obedient, right? Because it's not enough just to have the donkey. You want the donkey to obey you and do what yeah, you, right. you know, yeah. right? So you want to alienate the affection of that creature. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So Yeah, I think that's a fine distinction and actually a helpful distinction, a helpful justification for keeping these separate. Truth be told, I, I just tend to see them more as a unit and, you know, I mean, I'm well, not some gonna, people I'm not going to get into the whole number. Number, yeah, yeah, I right, just don't right. care. I mean, I actually, I find that an attractive option here, but I just don't care because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you said that before. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I wonder, too, about this point you made about the lack of content, because what we really want is to have all our wishes fulfilled, right? Yeah. Then we'll be happy. Yeah. But then what would we have to be to have all our wishes fulfilled? When we, God. We'd have to be God, right? right? So that's ultimately the sin, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that would make us profoundly unhappy. And that's the strange right. thing. Right, being sinful and all. Thing. Yeah, I, yeah I, don't, I haven't thought about it globally, but in terms of the West, that's why um, as our physical external pains diminish, our internal pains grow. Um, as we become more and more godlike, we become more and more deeply alienated and sorrowful and, dis and discontent in, in profound and hard to articulate ways. I mean, it's, nobody's happy in the West, even though we have every. I mean, we all live practically like Solomon. I'm exaggerating, but um, relative to the rest of the world and the rest of the time and place, that's how we live. And yet, how do we feel? Wretched. I mean, wretched. Thus all the medications, <laughs> thus all the counselors, thus all the self-help stuff, you know, on and on it goes. But yeah, yeah. Um, so to be totally dependent upon God, that's actually where our happiness lies. And, and concupiscence, coveting goes against that, that we were designed to be creatures, not gods, and that our true happiness and fulfillment is being, being creatures of God. Job, the punchline of Job is very much like this. That, you know, he has everything, he loses everything, and in the end he gets everything up again. But, you know, kind of sit, still sitting there like scratching your head, but yeah, but death is going to take that away. You know, so what's the, what's the answer to, you know, why it is that Job was afflicted? That kind of deeper question and deeper meditation that the text invites tangentially suffering. I don't think that that, like, why is there suffering? But I don't think that that's the main question. And the beauty 
is that God really doesn't give Job or us all the answers. He just gives Job and us himself. And he does that in kind of a, a really interesting form. I think a form that most of us would take in the way of the law. But if you really think about it, I don't, I'm not so sure at all. Uh, but it's this, where were you when I you know, laid the foundation of the earth? And this goes on for chapters and chapters. And it hits us like, like God's calling him out. Like, hey, you're not, you're not God, so what do you think you're doing? And maybe there's an aspect of that. But the flip side of that is, is I am God and I'm giving myself to you. And that's enough. You don't need to know everything. In fact, it's not good for you to know everything. Ah, that's, I mean, that's creatureliness. I created you to be a creature. Being a creature of mine is what will fulfill you, not pretending to be a god and thus constantly pursuing more and more wisdom, more and more answers, more and more wealth, more and more power, more and more of what you want. And our Lord Jesus shows us that with absolute climax and absolutely foundation to our identity as children of God on his cross. Right? I mean, how does his passion begin? Not on the cross, but in the garden. And not my will, but thy will be done. There's, there's real prof- profundity in that statement from this angle and answering that question is we find our truest happiness in uh, laying down our wills and abiding by the, you know, and love. Lo- the truest happiness, yeah, see? The truest happiness is loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why Christ on the cross is, is the happiest and most blessed of all men and is fulfilling the essence of what it means to be the son of the Father and loving him with all his heart. Isn't this great? Isn't this great? God has forsaken him on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus loves him freely. My God, my God, he says. Totally fulfilling the law. Even when, even when God, work with me here, when God hates him, forsakes him, he loves God. When all of humanity hates him, forsakes him, is murdering him, he loves humanity. He's utterly free and utterly happy by fulfilling the law. I mean, that's precisely the paradigm of the cross. That's precisely what we are in invited into as sons of the Father. It's this paradigm. It's to see that in our lives, to, to come to a point where you, you, know, you go along with God's will and with what is, rather than wishing for what isn't. And I think that that's the essence of, uh, of concupiscence and this concept of coveting. So, as I said, the commandments end with a bang and not with a whipper and with a huge profundity and invitation to do some real, real deep thinking. Um, And that's the joy. That's the joy of the commandments. Like I said, you can go over these things countless times and glean more and more. Okay, that takes us through, were there any other hands or are we all right? Okay, so that takes us through the ninth and the tenth commandment. Let's just do the close of the commandments. And then as I said, we'll make a few statements about the law. We'll see if you have any questions or comments. so the close of the command. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't. I should just read through the meanings quick of the ninth and tenth commandment. I'm sorry. The ninth commandment: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. In terms of the meaning, you know, 
like like thieving. At a certain point, thieving thieving doesn't care. But this ninth commandment, this meaning, Luther's drawing out this idea of in a way which only appears right. Like how we love to do that. Scheming, doing what appears right, um, but in fact it's not right. That's the ninth commandment. Okay, so instead of, instead of the, you know, these things that we don't do, we don't scheme or get it in a way which only appears right. Instead, we help and be of service to our neighbor in keeping it. I mean, could you imagine how business would be like revolutionized by Christians if we, if we did that? All right, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice I think that's a great one. The force away, maybe maybe slightly less possible in our context. I don't know, um, but the entice away yeah, that we not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. All right, and then on to the close of the commandments, where I think you have some. Um, if you haven't been introduced to the hyperbole of God, I think you'll be introduced to the hyperbole of God, the, the exaggeration of God in order to make a point. What does, what does God say about all these commandments? Of course, this comes right from Exodus. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay, well, we should probably stop there for just a moment. Um, we, we typically think of jealousy as a, as a negative, selfish, human emotion. That's typically what we mean by jealousy. Um, but that's, that's, not what, that's not what's meant here. Maybe the window into this is if you're out to dinner with your spouse uh, and, and your spouse's eye wanders, maybe to someone of the opposite sex who's uh, promiscuously dressed, okay? that, that sense of violation that rises up in your chest of, Hey, hey, I love you and you love me and we're committed to each other. That, that sense is, is, probably, is probably a nice window or gateway into this sense of the jealousy of God. Um, we are his children. He's, he's jealous for us. He wants us, he wants us to be as he is, not, you know, not to go and run off after those who are the antithesis of who he is, after the false gods and demons, or, or, as, a, or as Christ as the bridegroom and his church the bride. He's jealous for us with a holy jealousy and a love that says, you're mine. I've laid down, I've laid down my life for you and, and you are mine and you've, you've given yourself to me and I am yours. And so, so there's, this, uh, there's a violation of that that's going to destroy you um, if, if you go off and, and do these things that are contrary to my will. Okay, so that's probably how we should understood, understand jealousy. I, the complaint, you know, my... My husband is so jealous of me, or my wife is so jealous of me. It's like, probably in our context, nine times out of ten, that's not a valid complaint. <laughs> you know, that's probably how it should be. That's probably the, your, your exercise of your own personal autonomy, as you see it, is doing great damage uh, to that relationship. Be that as it may, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, okay. punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Um, you know, in, in some respects, this is a kind of generational... Okay, the key here, the key is those who hate me. 
And I, th I don't think it's reading too much into it to think like this. I mean, in order to, in order to hate God, you've kind of got to know something about God. And so this becomes particularly egregious as, you know, the closer you are to God then to become hate-filled toward him uh, becomes more and more egregious and has, the, and has the, the qualities of embittering a soul so much that it passes on to the next generations. I can think of this concretely. Um, a few generations ago, you never missed church. Never. And then, and then the next generation, well, we miss, we miss church once in a while. And the next generation, we miss church every other week. And the next generation, hey, we go to church once a month. You know, I, and, and even there, I'm kind of exaggerating, maybe even being a little too gracious, because it's faster than that, isn't it? I mean, now it's sort of become the norm in the church of like, hey, you, pastor, just be glad that I'm there. Jeez. <laughs> So, so look, look, at how, look at how fast things deteriorate. And I think that that's why the Lord is warning here. I mean, we're going to get into this, you know. I think that's what the Lord's warning is. Look how fast things deteriorate. For those, those who hate me, it just doesn't go well. There's a, there's a generational de de deterioration and a kind, of, a kind of ontological or inherent punishment. You know, what I mean by that, to try to make it more basic, is... In Romans, Paul talks about God's punishment of sin as giving them over to what they desire. I, th I think it's Luther then that says that um, God punishes sin with sin. So God says, God says, okay, you're sure you want to sin? Repent. You're sure you want to sin? Repent. You're sure you want to sin? Fine, go sin. Have it your way. And he gives them over to that sin, and that sin begets sin, and so forth. And there's even a generational component. So we don't have to think of God's punishment always as, um, you know, fire and brimstone, temporal and eternal punishment. There is, to be sure, all of that. Um, but there's also just this kind of punishment where he says, fine, have it exactly as you want. Not as I want, but as you want. And that's punishment in and of itself. So these are all thoughts to consider in, when, you're, when you're thinking along these lines of um, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay? But showing love to a thousand generations. Now this is interesting. Since the dawn of humanity, have there really been a thousand generations? Probably not. Probably not even close. <laughs> okay, so what's God saying here? Such profound blessing. He likens it to blessing thousands of generations. If this is hyperbole here, might it even be hyperbole over in the third and fourth generation? Might not God's point be so much, hey, you know, there's this thing called generational sin and generational blessing and all. Might God's point be like, hey, I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And my punishments, while significant, are three or four. My blessings are thousandfold. I think that that's an interesting, an interesting way of pondering this. That the Lord wants to show that he is indeed capable of punishing those who break his commandments. But he's reluctant to do so and he minimizes that. He is indeed willing and capable to bless those who keep his commandments. And he is zealous to do so to a profound degree. 
showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, the oper operative words there, what puts you in one group, the, the first group who hate me, what puts you in the second group who love me. Okay. Luther, what does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. Now, notice how every single commandment Luther has said we should fear and love God. I think it's the first commandment it's the only one that breaks this. We should fear, love, and trust in God. Okay, every other commandment is we should fear and love. So here he's at the fear component. God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love. And there's that that echoes all the way through. And then this ties us back into the first commandment, fear, love, and trust. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Yeah, I don't want to read too much into this, but there's two motivators to keep the law of God. Motivator one, fear. <laughs> motivator two, love. I mean, we, we fear the consequences, and we should. That's great. That's good. But that's precisely what the old man needs to hear, so he doesn't go wild. And uh, then we want to, because, because we love because he has first loved us. And so love then becomes a, a great motivator, a profound motivator. Okay, that takes us through the Ten Commandments. Now, just a, just a few notes here. Um, if you are in the 2017 version, you can find parallel questions probably in the older versions. If you are in the 2017 version, um, you may want to just glance at uh, page 53. Um, it's question 17. And so we're just going to reflect on with our last five minutes here, and then we'll do the creed next week. Um, but we'll just reflect here on uh, just a couple of uh, kind of Lutheran points of doctrine and, and jargon. And they're biblical, of course, uh, but good for you to know or be refreshed in. Um, with question 17, and I commend all these questions to you, that's fine, but I just picked out a couple that are more germane. Um, how did God give his law to us? And there you'll see, first, God wrote these instructions upon the heart of every human creature. All people have a conscience, an inborn sense of what's right and wrong. Okay? So that's the law of God written on our hearts. Now, as with, as with um, any members of your, of your body, mind, or soul, if you abuse them, um, they, they stop functioning the way God gave them to function. You know, if you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, lo and behold, you will not be able to run very well. And it's the same kind of thing with the conscience. If you violate your conscience over and over and over again, don't be surprised when your conscience is broken. And that's really what you see in, uh, in the world uh, today, is a lot of people, their conscience is so broken that what God says is wrong, they say is right. And they, and they, actually, they actually, in their heart, don't feel any twinge of guilt or remorse whatsoever. Their conscience is broken. So what do you need? You need the gospel. Of course. I mean, well, you need the law so that they recognize there's a problem and that they're not aligned with God at all and there's going to be repercussions. Then you need the gospel that says Christ has taken all your sins and the sins of the whole world upon him and put them away forever. And God has reconciled himself with you, so be reconciled to him. You need that proclamation. And then let's, let's assume the person says, great, I want to be baptized. I want to be a child of God and live before him. Like, what, what again takes that and what is, the, what is the form of that conscience as it's being restored? You know, and that's, that's the form of God's will. This is who our Heavenly Father is. And so, um, it's that restoration of the law in the heart and it's the writing of the conscience. 
Yeah, we know too in this fallen state that the conscience, you've probably had this experience, I know of, I, I've had. So, um, temptation to do something wrong is there, and you, you know, don't feel all that bad about doing it, and so you do it, and then what happens? Then conscience is like, oh my gosh, what were you thinking? What did you do? You know, <laughs> it's like, hey, hey, conscience, why weren't you there five seconds ago? I really could have used you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> But that's, that's an aspect and way in which our conscience is broken, um, given the fallenness of the world. All right, so the law is written on our hearts. Paul goes into this in depth in Romans, arguing that, look, even if you didn't have the Ten Commandments as such, you have within your heart that judgment, and God's going to have no problem holding you accountable on the last day, even though you didn't know the Ten Commandments or no one taught them to you. You knew it in your heart. All right, and then page 54, second, God wrote the Ten Commandments on stone tablets for the people of Israel. Okay, that's what we've been studying. And then third, right next to, right next to um, question 18, God also gave these instructions in various ways throughout the Bible. And that's true enough. Each one of the Ten Commandments except for the third shows up in the New Testament as well. So just as a general rule and principle, you get these Ten Commandments. You know, you never get a, well, Christ has come, so the law is undone, so now go out and murder everyone you want. Uh, you know, now hurt or harm your neighbor in his body. Now go sleep with whoever you, I mean, it, so the gospel itself never violates any of these commandments. Okay, thus we find them in the New Testament. All right, and then, and then the next, we see the three uses of the law, and this gets kind of bandied about and I'm not going to, I commend the scriptures underneath to you as kind of the proof text, some of them better than others, to tell you the truth. Um, but nonetheless, we Lutherans, we talk about the law as having three um, functions or uses. And that is, the first is a curb. So God uses his commandments, that is the law, in three ways. We call these the three uses of the law. First, for the good of his creation, God uses the law to limit or prevent coarse outbursts of sin, thereby helping to keep order in the world, a curb. Okay. Why, do, why don't you rob a bank even though you could really, really use the money? Because you're going to get caught. You're going to go to jail. All right, that's off the table, right? So a curb, it functions inside of you. Um, it, it functions outside of you in the form of government, um, which is just sort of the collective conscience of the people. All right, that's a curb. Second, he uses the law to reveal and condemn our sin. That's as a mirror. And this is sometimes called the theological use of the law, or even the primary use of the law. Because, because again, if, what is the law's role in salvation? And the strict answer there is nothing. Okay? Um, maybe a more nuanced answer is, its role in our salvation is first to show you how you cannot save yourself in any way, shape, or form. It's to stop every mouth so that you receive the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? That's, so, so the second use, because, because our justification, our standing before God, is like, I mean, what could be more foundational? Okay? Then in this paradigm of our standing before God, the law has nothing to say to you, like, keep me and you're going to be saved. <laughs> in theory, okay, go ahead and try. Uh, so thus you're not going to be saved. Um, that's all the law says. And so this is the second use of the law, the theological or, or main or primary use of the law. And uh, again, Romans, you can see quoted here underneath, very, very fruitful use of the law. Okay, and then third, 
He uses the law to guide and direct our thoughts, words, and deeds as Christians in, a, in God-pleasing ways. So as a guide, a curb, a mirror, and a guide. Um, you can see here how it says, as Christians, because, because no one, um, I mean, no pagan goes, gosh, I, I really love God so much because he sent his son to die for me, um, and so therefore I want to live in a way that pleases him. And if you say that, you're not a pagan, you're a Christian. And what pagan is out there going, gosh, I really want to please God, you know? I mean, maybe to, maybe to sort of like justify himself, but that's a far cry from, from this. So you can see that this third use of the law, as the catechism points out, is, is really properly speaking of our, our deeds as Christians. So what is it that is a God-pleasing work? You know, do you go join a, a, a monastery and put on a... Uh, an itchy shirt and starve yourself and roll around in ashes, is that a, is that a work that pleases God? Uh, the Bible never commands that work. So here's where, here's, where the, the, here's where the Bible, here's where God says, this is my will for you, this is what pleases me. Okay? And then we can use that to keep ourselves straight too, because, I mean, nobody here obviously, but uh, as a pastor you hear the darndest things. People will come up to you and say, Pastor, the Holy Spirit told me I should be married to this other woman. Really? The Holy Spirit told you that. Ah, let's, let's check the commandments. See if it's really the Holy Spirit or an unholy one. <laughs> so so the, uh, the Ten Commandments are quite, quite freeing to us because we can say, hey, here's... We're not going to get bound up in all these false good works. We're, going to, we're set free from those false good works. And this is, I mean, the, the Lutheran Confessions talk about this um, in the article on the third use of the law and the formula of concord, that it really sets us free from all man-made works and tells us what truly pleases God. Okay, that's it. That's it. The three uses of the law, a curb, a guide, and a mirror. Now, there's other things we can talk about. They'll probably come up in the course of our study. So let's just plan next week to get into the Apostles' Creed, we'll learn who God is, we'll learn who our Savior Jesus is, we'll learn the, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you.